Hey guys, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money for your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Okay. Today I decided to do something a little bit different. I decided to do a... Um, a two-parter series on an actually really famous, a very, not really, but very famous case that happened here in Plano. So a local case. And, um, so I'm going to pretty much start in the beginning about two people who met and a fallout from their meeting and everything that happens. Okay. So when Pat Montgomery married Candace, or Candy, as she's known throughout this episode, in which I'm going to call her Wheeler, in the early 70s, he was one of the brightest young electrical engineers at Texas Instruments. Candy had been working as a secretary. She was petite and blonde and a little impish, with a thin, pointed nose and a contagious, high-pitched laugh. She was an army brat, the daughter of a radar tech who had spent the last... 20 years after World War II, bouncing from base to base. Candy and Pat moved to Wiley, Texas in 1977 with a son and a daughter. By then, their marriage had settled into routine. Pat was providing everything Candy had ever expected from him, which included a $70,000 income from his work on sophisticated military radar systems at Texas Instruments. Candy didn't mind, did not mind taking care of children, taking care of the children in their house, but she was incredibly bored crazy, as she called it. So the next lady I'm going to talk about is someone called Betty Gore. Betty Pomeroy was one of those girls whose conventionality made her the frequent center of attention. She was pretty and had an innocence, innocence about her with a wide Hollywood smile that had made her one of the most popular girls in her tiny hometown of Norwich, Kansas. In college, Betty fell in love with her math teacher. When Gina and Gore decided to get married, her family and friends were surprised. They couldn't see what they what she saw in him. Alan was a small, plain man with horn-rimmed glasses and puffy cheeks, and even at a young age, signs of a receding hairline. He was also shy, which often made him come across as stern or aloof or even snobbish. Belly and Betty and Alan decided to get married in January 1970, and they eventually settled in the suburbs of Dallas. When their first child was born, Alan was working for Rockwell International, an electronics conglomerate and major defense contractor. In 1976, Betty took a job teaching at an elementary school in the small town of Wiley, about 10 miles east of Plano, but she did not enjoy her work for very long. Despite her unhappiness, though, Betty had decided as a new school year, as the new school year began in the fall of 1978, that they should go ahead and have their next child. But this time, she wanted the pregnancy plan down to the exact week, 
so that the baby will be born in midsummer, and she shouldn't have to take any more time off from teaching. The girl's sex wife had dwindled down to almost nothing, and when they did have sex, it was completely mechanical. Now, Alan was required to have clinical sex clinical sex with Betty every night during their during her estimated fertility period in the name of planning family planning. He felt a little resentful. He had the distinct feeling he was being used. That combined with Betty's usual complaints with minor illnesses made Alan's marital feature look bleak indeed when compared with the bright, happy-go-lucky face of Candy Montgomery, full of promises, and he had to admit, allure. It was a church service that first brought Candy Montgomery and Betty Gore together, and it was a church that led them to their times of closeness and eventually to their mutual hatred and unfortunately, and a very untimely death. The Methodist Church of Lucas was more than most places of worships, and in an institution controlled by women. The center of Candy Montgomery's universe, almost from the first day in 1977, was a drafty white clapboard building, simply known that was simply known as the church. So on a late summer day in 1978, on the church volleyball court was when Kenny Montgomery decided to start an affair with Betty Gore's husband, Alan. That is spelled A-L-L-A-N, not Alan like the city. Candy and Alan both tried to make a play on the same ball and collided. It was a harmless bump and which went unnoticed by everyone else on the court. But for Candy, it brought a revelation. Alan Gore smelled sexy for several weeks she had been talking abstractly to her friends about having an affair she just wanted something to shake up her very boring life with pat montgomery she was explicit about the kind of affair she was interested in i want fireworks alan gore had a receding hairline and the beginnings of a paunchy midsection and he dressed blanche to say the least but in other ways he was the kind of man she might be able to have a good time with Candy had only known Alan for nine months, but it seemed much longer. He was a he was a lot like her, active in the church, a lover of kids, an outgoing, personable half of a mishmashed couple. He sang in the choir, helped organize the sports teams, and he did all the things that Betty never seemed to want to get involved in. He also had a sense of humor. It began with the little things. He seen a joke with her more than he joked with the other women at church. He teased her about her lack, her volleyball skills, and occasionally he'd given her a sly wink as though they shared some little secret. After choir practice, the two of them would occasionally chat a little longer than normal or loiter in the parking lot while the others were getting into their cars. The flirting was subtle. Sometimes it was so much like Alan's natural friendliness with everyone that Candy doubted it was a real flirtation. But then, Alan would do something that was unmistakably designed to get her attention. As weeks went by, she started sexually, she started fantasizing about sex with a man who smelled so nice. Candy was almost 29 years old and sexually frustrated. She was totally honest with herself about that. She decided to do something about it. She got her chance one night after choir practice. Alan was ready, was already getting into his car. When Candy spotted him, she strode up to the passenger side and opened the door. Alan, she said, leaning into the car, I want to talk to you sometime about something that has been bothering me. 
bothering me. Oh, he said. Oh, right now. Candy slid into the seat beside him. She didn't even look at him. I've been thinking about you a lot, and it's really bothering me, and I don't know whether I want to do anything with Battered or not. I'm a little confused at nothing. I'm very attracted to you, and I'm tired of thinking about it, and so I wanted to tell you. She then left the car and slammed the door and hurried across the parking lot. I just wanted to bring this up. Here's the thing. I do affairs to me are completely fine. I have no problem with this. This episode is coming at someone who does not judge them. I've never, I would not judge them. I do understand why affairs happen. That be, that said, I'm just saying throughout this episode, it may sound like I'm being a judge person, but I am not. I just wanted to let that out, to get that out there. There's no judge. There's no judgment in anything that these two consenting parties wanted to do. I just want to get that out there. And that's all I'm going to say in the matter. I've been thinking about you a lot and it's really bothering me and I do not, don't know whether I want you to do anything about it or not. I'm a little confused, said nothing. I'm very attracted to you and I'm tired of thinking about it and so I wanted to tell you. She left her car and slammed the door and hurried across the parking lot. Adam was not shocked by Candy's directness. He had known her long enough to realize that she spoke exactly what was on her mind. But he was nonplussed that another woman was interested in him sexually who was also surprised and secretly pleased that it was Candy. Even though she wasn't what you would call a classic beauty, she was one of the most she was one of the most attractive women in the church, in his opinion, and she was certainly the most fun to be with. Then a wave of doubt overtook him. Maybe Candy was just flirting in her own way. <laughs> flirting in her own way. Oh, sorry. Because all she really had said was that she had been thinking about him. But such an odd way to say it. A week or so after the choir practice, Alan saw Candy again. It was after another church volleyball game. Alan and Candy stayed to clean up the gym, and afterward they walked to the parking lot together. When they reached her car, Alan said, Now what is it you had in mind? Get in, said Candy. Alan slid into another passenger seat. Would you be interested in having an affair, she asked? I don't know what to say, he said. I don't think I could, Candy. I don't think it'd be a wise thing to do because I love Betty. Once when we were living in New Mexico, she had an affair that hurt me a lot. And I wouldn't want to do that to her. That's fine, Alan. I love Pat, too. I wouldn't want to hurt him, either. Betty just got pregnant again, too. And it would be unfair to her, especially since I don't feel the same way about you that I do about her. So I probably couldn't do something like that. Okay, Alan, I was just putting the option out there because of how I felt and it's up for you to decide. I don't want to hurt your marriage. All I wanted to do was go to bed. I won't mention again. He leaned across the seat and softly kissed her lips. Then he quickly 
got out of the car. The relationship began between Candy and Pat had become more strained because they were both arguing more than usual. An example was she brought home some A-plus papers from the writing class she was enrolled in, but all Pat would do was glance at them and pretend to understand. To Pat, they were arguments over nothing, but to, but to her, they represented everything wrong with their marriage. Two or three weeks later, on Candy's 29th birthday, she received a call from an unexpected person. Hi, this is Alan. I must go to McKinney tomorrow to get some tire shipped on the new truck I brought up here. I wonder if you'd like to have lunch, you know, to talk a little more about the about what we talked about before. Alan and Candy met in an auto repair, auto repair shop in McKinney, the Venerable County, a few miles north of Candy's house. Alan broke the ice right away by surprising her with a birthday card. On the front it read, For the last of the Red Hot Lovers, she opened it with a small plastic bag of Red Hots inside. It was a kind of hokey gag that Candy loved, and she was instantly touched. They got into her car and drove to a quaint little tea house, where they talked about everything except themselves for the better part of an hour. Alan talked about Betty. Candy talked about Pat. They compared notes on their children and chatted about church matters. She then got Alan to talk about his work for a while, and he in turn seemed interested in when she discussed her creative writing courses. Then after the meal was cleared away and they began to sip their coffee, Alan said, I've never done anything like an affair before. I haven't either, said Candy. I would never be able to forgive myself if Betty ever found out something about like that. I think it would be devastating to her. I feel the same way. I wouldn't want to see anyone hurt by this, Pat or Betty. We would have to be so careful that no one would ever know except us. I've been thinking a lot about what you said about not wanting to emotionally get involved. That would be very important for me. Me too, Alan. I just want to enjoy myself without hurting myself or anyone else. Let's think about it some more and maybe we should think about the hazards some more and whether we want to take that risk. Fine. I think we should. A week later, Alan called Candy again while Pop, Pat was at work. You know, if you don't go to bed with me pretty soon, Alan, then you'll never be able to live to the expectation I have of you in bed. Candy told him. I know he said. I thought of that. So the month of October 1978 consisted generally of strategy, strategy sessions for what must have been the most meticulous planned love affair. Soon after lunch at the house, Tea House and McKinney, they arranged to meet for lunch again, this time at the parking lot of Allen's office in Richmond, Richardson, from which they drove to a nearby restaurant. Alan was accustomed to making his own hours at work, so a long lunch break was no problem, but they could save time if Candy picked him up. They talked a great deal about emotional involvement. They agreed that there would be none of that. It was too dangerous. If they limited the fear to sex, they were safe. Alan soon became much more comfortable with the idea of an affair, because to his surprise, that he could go to lunch with Candy, talk with her immediately, intimately on the phone, and then go home to Betty and be always completely normal. So at the end of November 1978, Candy came up with the best stratagem of all. She invited Alan to her house for lunch. She fixed her, fa fixed her famous lasagna for the occasion. 
She also decided before Alan arrived that if nothing happened soon, she wouldn't spend any more time on this. As soon as Alan walked into the Montgomery house that day, he broke into laughter. For the first time, he saw hanging above the room was a huge piece of butcher paper. On it, in magic marker, were two columns, Y's and Why Nots. The cute sign eased the tension. After eating, they sat in the living room and went over the list an item at a time. They took the Why Nots first, beginning with the most important one, fear of getting caught. Alan was much more concerned about one of the Why Nots farther down the list, the possibility that they would become emotionally involved. We need to think about what we're getting into, said Alan. Alan, as far as I'm concerned, this is just for fun. I am not serious about it. It is just a companionship thing, and we shouldn't be afraid of it. Whatever happens, we'll do it for a while, and then it'll be over. I'm afraid I might get emotionally involved. We just won't let that happen. The wise were a sense of adventure a need, and a need for companionship. We'll always wonder if we don't do it, she said. I know, said Alan. It's up to you, Alan. I know I can do it. I know I can act in an adult fashion and not take unnecessary risks. I made up my mind, so just tell me if you wanted if you want to do it. How much farther can you go? They had already made the made too big a deal of something that should have been more than natural. It wasn't as though Alan Gore was their fantasy man or anything. A few days later he called again. I've decided I want to go ahead with it, he said. It still did not need to happen right away. There were ground rules to be established, logistical problems to be worked out. This affair was to be conducted properly. She even made a list of rules one day so they could discuss them on the phone. If either one of them ever wanted to end the affair for whatever reasons, it would end. No questions asked. If either one became too emotionally involved, the affair would end. If they ever started taking risks and that shouldn't be taken, the affair would end. All expenses, food, motel room, gasoline, would be shared equally. They would meet only on weekdays while their spouses were at work. Candy would overcome for would oversee fixing lunches on the days they met so they could have more time. They figured they would eat all of Alan's two-hour lunch break. Candy would oversee getting a motel room for the same reason. They would meet on a Tuesday or a Thursday once every two weeks. This was generally because Candy was free only on days when her little boy attended the Playdate Preschool at Allen, A-L-L-E-N, Methodist Church. She took him each Tuesday and Thursday from 9 to 2, but she figured she would need three out of four of those school days for all the other errands and church and school duties in her hectic schedule. So now we come to the part where the affair officially starts. So the date of that the affair was officially start was December 12th, 1978. So essentially a month later, a month, give or two, a few weeks after they come up with all these rules and after all the, all the planning and such, they decide to do it. So first she dropped, first Candy decides to drop her daughter off at the Little Red Lovejoy Schoolhouse on FM Road 1378. Then she went on to Allen and deposited her son at the play day preschool. When she got back to her house, she allowed herself about an hour to fix this, fix this special lunch she had planned. She packed everything, including a tablecloth, into a picnic basket and then gathered a few undergarments and a nightgown and slipped them into her purse. She had everything ready by 10.45. By 11, she was entering, entering Richardson in her station wagon, searching for motel convenience Allen's office. She found one right on the freeway just two or three minutes away from Allen 
called the Continental Inn. It took a few minutes to check in because the girl behind the counter insisted on seeing her driver's license and getting the money in advance. Candy paid the $29 and then filled out the registration card with her real name. The girl gave her the key to one of the upstairs rooms set back from the highway. Candy drove the station wagon around to the back and started unpacking. Then Candy went straight to the phone and called Alan at work. I'm at the Continental Inn on Central Expressway. Expressway, she said. Room 213. Be there in a few minutes, he said. She busied herself getting the room ready. First, she rained her feast on the bed. Then she slipped into her favorite peekaboo negligee. It was a soft pink color and almost sheer. She looked at herself in the mirror. Her mother, too. She didn't look bad. Then she sat in a chair by the window and waited. On the way to the motel, Alan discovered that he wasn't quite as brave as he had thought, either. He worried that perhaps the only reason he was doing this was to please Candy. He had to admit that Candy was sexually appealing, and yet he didn't want to be full of anxiety at this all the time. He didn't want to feel this, the way he was feeling now. That feeling soon disappeared once he opened the door and saw Candy smiling and seductive in her bright and her pink nightgown. He felt a surge of bravado. What the heck? What the heck? I'm here and I'm going to do it. I made lunch, she said. They sat on either side of the bed and made small talk. Alan could tell, much to his surprise, that Candy was even more nervous than he was. Both started to eat and finished off a dessert and then busied themselves with putting aside the paper plates and containers as though neither wanted to make the first move. When there was nothing left to do, Candy sat quiet in the chair by the window. There was a moment of strained silence. Well, are you just going to sit there? He asked. Yes, I am. Alan walked around the bed and gently touched her on the shoulder. All her nervousness dissolved. The sex was gentle, gentle and conventional and satisfying. It was very brief. Candy was amazed at first by Alan's naivete as a lover. For his part... Alan was positively transposed, transported. Candy's was responsive and energetic. She moved so much that Alan found it more exciting than any sexual experience he'd ever had. It was good for him because it seemed so good for her. He couldn't keep going very long, but he remembered the feeling four days. Afterward, Candy insisted that they both take showers before leaving. Despite Alan's apparent inexperience, she hadn't had to fake her response much at all. And he did show great promise as a lover. Alan was just as satisfied by the lunchtime rendezvous and was looking forward to the next one. When he went back to work, he felt weak the rest of the afternoon. A week later, just before the Christmas holidays, so this is same year, 1978, they arranged by phone for a peak performance. She made lunch, but changed one other detail. When she got to Richardson, she noticed a small, sleazier motel across from the Connecticut. Continental. The Como Motel was quite a come down, even by less than luxurious standards of the Continental. She got the impression that the Como didn't even have didn't have a lot of overnight visitors when she walked into the office and came face to face with a clerk standing behind a plexiglass screen. The manager wanted twenty three fifteen cash in advance plus a two dollar deposit for the key. Candy put her money in the trough under the window, and she was given a key. She drove around to the asphalt lot in the back. The sleaziness of the place always made it so illicit and so much fun. The room was a little more than a cubicle, done in a tattered harvest gold. 
The curtains were drooping and frayed. The shag carpet was matted like dirty hair. The bathroom had a fake terrazzo, terrazzo flooring. The faucet leaks and the only furnishings other than the bed were a tiny vanity set, a TV set, and two captain's chairs with imitation leather cushions. They made it here the last days of 1978 and the first three months of 1979. It made glorious love every other week. Dine on taco salad and homemade lasagna and sip cheap red wine out of plastic cups supplied by management. Afterward, they were reclined on the bedspread and rest their heads on tiny foam rubber pillows and talk with their lives and their spouses and this child and their mutual love for the church. They would talk until it was time for Alan to go back to work for, for Candy to pick up her son. And then go stand in the tub and turn on the faulty shower attachment and wash off the smell of each other. Finally, they would gather up their belongings, kiss each other lightly on the lips, and go back to their normal lives, closing the door behind them. Later, when Alan looked back on his whirlwind lunch hours with Candy Montgomery, he would think less of the sex than of the re relaxation he took there. Those two hours with Candy were often the only time he didn't feel responsibility for, the, for other people's emotions. The awful burden of making Betty happy, Betty happy. In the confines of a room at the Coma Motel, Alan was a man with no past and no future. Able to accept Candy's confidential affection, she showered him with it. In a way that was simple and guiltless, Alan had never been with any other woman except Betty in his life. This experience was revitalizing in a way that his life with Betty hadn't been for a long time. The affair made Candy feel alive again, too. She was excited about it and the intrigue and the adventure of it all. And she continued to see Alan every two weeks. Like clockwork. Unfortunately, after the third or fourth guilt time at the Como, she started to have second thoughts. Her doubts weren't spurred by any feelings of guilt. They started, in fact, when she realized that sex with Alan Gore wasn't going to get much better than it already was. The more serious problem was that Candy feared she was beginning to like Alan too much. Sometimes she even thought she loved him. That was too risky. Sex or no sex, she and Alan had both come to look forward to their daily conversations, their shared confidences, their joint dependence. Lately, they had been exchanging funny little greeting cards, and whenever Candy had a drive into Richardson on an errand, she would stop at Alan's office and place gifts under his windshield wiper. Sometimes Alan would go to check out his car, even though he was staying for lunch, just to see if he had any brownies or homemade candy waiting for him. As time went on, they seemed less like lovers and more like best friends. By February 1979, after only two and a half months, she was more than a little anxious that the relationship was turning serious suddenly. Uh, one day at lunch, she tentatively broached the subject with Alan. I think I'm getting in too deep, she said. What do you mean? I don't want to fall in love with you. We're getting serious and I know this is a temporary thing. I don't want to have to deal with myself later if we go too far. How do you know this is getting too serious? I think of you too much. But I thought you were the one who said you got to plow into life and see what happens. That's That's right. I did say that. Well, I guess I'm caught in my own trap. It won't get too serious if we don't get it, let it get too serious. I think the relationship is temporary too but we've got to let it run its course well if we're not too worried about it i guess that makes it half right eventually candy allowed herself to be talked into going on 
Most because she didn't like the thought of not talking to Alan, and she was afraid they wouldn't be able to continue their friendship without sex. It hoped that she and Pat were planning a long vacation to visit her parents in Georgia. That would give her most of the April to sort things out and discover how she really felt about Alan. That has something special, something that was renewed each time they caught each other's eye during a church service or touched hands over a table at lunch or did something as simple as wasting time on the phone. Alan felt better about himself. He didn't want this affair to get out of hand, of course, but so far, he was, su he was surprised at how little had changed the rest of his life. If anything, it had made everything a little easier. Even going to the church was easy, and at first he hadn't expected to do that. He still liked Pat. He didn't think he was doing anything to hurt him. There was no change in his relationship with Betty. Who knew where this affair would end up or how long it would last? But in the meantime, he was enjoying it, and he couldn't see how anything very bad resolved from it. He hadn't realized until a few weeks off how much affair, how much work an affair could be. When Candy returned from vacation, it was obvious that she had missed him so much as he missed her. They made a day for the Como, but after the lunch and sex, they spent most of their time catching up on each other's lives. One thing they talked about was Betty's pregnancy. Betty was seven months long, and Alan was getting a little apprehensive. Betty would need lots of attention as the day grew closer because of problems with the first baby. And it had crossed Alan's mind that if Betty had started having labor pains when he happened to be at the Como, he would never be able to forgive himself. So in early June 1979, he told Candy he thought they should discontinue the affair for a while so that he could always be available for Betty. Candy agreed completely. Andy loved that. Alan loved that about Candy. She understood things like that. Betty would have disagreed and whined, especially when something she wanted was threatened. Sometimes Alan wondered what it would be like to be married to Candy. But then he thought, no, that was out of the question. He knew that he'd never divorce Betty no matter what. The last visit to the Como had confirmed her earlier fears. The sex was not great. They spent so much time talking that the physical part was all but obligatory. She would never say so, but Candy was also tired of getting up early on the days they sinned together. The whole thing was becoming a hassle. She missed the magic of those first few weeks. At times, Candy would admit to herself that she felt guilty about Pat. He was oblivious to everything. She was certain that he had no suspicions about her and Alan, even though they exchanged glances during worship service. Nevertheless, sometimes it was hard to be around Pat, just because he did trust her so much. And it didn't make it any easier when Pat would tell her how much he liked Alan. Candy's powers of deception were put to the ultimate test in mid-June, when she threw a sit-down Chinese dinner for the choir. The real purpose of this dinner... And if you're wondering, it's a baby shower for, you guessed it, Betty Gore. It was Candy's idea. She thought it would be fun. It didn't occur to her that it might be awkward since she had never felt uncomfortable around Betty, even though she'd been sleeping with Alan. Someone fixed a special cake. Everyone brought gifts and Candy turned out to be right. Nobody felt uncomfortable. Not even Betty. So this entire time, they've been able to keep this affair very secret, even though, you know, they're meeting with each other at, they're meeting each other at church and everything, and she's throwing a baby shower for Alan's wife, and her husband Pat doesn't expect anything, nor does Alan's wife expect anything. 
So it's incredibly, incredibly interesting how they managed to keep this affair secret for so long. Okay, so Bethany Gore, which is Alan and Betty's third and final, third, third child, their last child, was born in early July 1979, and Betty seemed to perk up for a while. Bethany brought her parents closer together, especially during the week just after she was born, before they told anyone in the church about her. The feeling, unfortunately, didn't last very long. Now that Alan didn't need to be put on call all the time, there was really no reason for him to put up with the affair any longer. But when he and Candy renewed their love making at the Como in late July, it seemed different. Lackluster. The sex was still good. Alan thought that Candy was more reserved than usual. A couple times she gripped at him about little things that didn't matter, and that wasn't like her at all. Alan started to feel guilty. He thought of Betty back at the house, taking care of Alyssa and Bethany by herself. And he didn't feel good about himself. That week after the baby was born, he had, had been something special. He wondered if there was a way to get it back. He hoped he wasn't making that impossible by continuing to see Candy. Alan was grateful when Betty finally felt well enough to travel, because that meant they could take a whole week to show the baby to her anxious Kansas grandparents. He wanted to be away from Candy for a few days, but he wasn't prepared to tell her that. Before Alan left, they agreed to meet at the Como on the following Friday, since Candy knew she could get a sitter that day. The Gores didn't ride home from their Kansas trip until late Thursday night, and ordinarily Alan would have taken off work on Friday as well, but he knew that Candy really wanted to see him that day. If he didn't go to work and she ended up at the Como by herself, the fallout would be disastrous. But when Alan told Betty he intended to go to work on Friday, she objected, arguing that he should stay home and help her with errands. Not only was she insistent that he stay home, but she was also more than a little ang suspicious about why he just had to go to work. So Alan cooked up an excuse to call Candy, something to do with the church. And then he phoned from the kitchen while Betty was in the master bedroom at the back of the house. Without saying the words, he got the message across he couldn't make it. Candy grew angry when she realized what he was telling her. Because now she and Pat were leaving for a week-long vacation, and that meant she couldn't see Alan for another two weeks. Alan didn't want to hang out while she was mad, so he stayed on the phone a few minutes, hoping she would calm down. While she hung up, while he hung up, feeling depressed and stupid, sheepish, he walked back to the bedroom. Candy and Pat spent the next week in Wichita, in Wichita Falls, and the following Friday she met Alan at the Coma Hotel. It was late when he got back to the office. After he left the office that night, Betty wanted to make love. The Gores hadn't had sex since the baby was born, at first because Betty didn't feel up to it. Later, because they were simply out of the habit. Alan had become so desultory about making love to his wife that they were, they were having sex no more than once a month. But the odd thing about that night was that Betty was so aggressive. It wasn't like her. Alan couldn't remember her taking initiative before in all the years they had been married. But Alan had been with Candy a long time that afternoon, and he was spent. He was surprised by Betty's sexual advance, though he couldn't think of any, an excuse. He just said he didn't feel like it. After Alan rebuffed her, she began to cry. She was embarrassed and humiliated and deeply hurt. It would have been different if she were in the habit of making advances, but to have the very first one rebuffed was too much for her. She jumped to conclusions. Alan didn't love her anymore. He hated her because she was fat after having the baby. 
So on Monday morning, I'm on the phone, Candy. I need to talk. When can we meet? When can I meet you and where? They arranged to meet for lunch, and Alan poured the whole story of that Friday night. Betty was very upset, he said. She kept saying, you don't love me anymore. You don't love me anymore. You did reassure her, didn't you? Yes. Candy began to cry. I think it's a little unfair of Betty to say a thing like that after you can't perform it one time. It upset me, too. It was just she made the first move. What are you going to do? I think maybe we should end it. Now, you're being grossly unfair. Well, here's the thing. Back then, the rules they made in the early months of, like, 1978 of December, they said if they got too emotionally attached, you know, they could end it. No feelings or anything attached. No feelings hurt. And if, you know, they were hurting one another, there are another spouses, they said they would end it. But, unfortunately, Candy is realizing, I don't want that anymore. Um... I'm afraid of hurting Betty. I think maybe the affair is affecting my marriage now, and if I want to get my life back in order, I have to stop running between two women. What about when I suggest we ended it? Remember what you said then? You spoke? No. Well, you have to see the truth at the end, and just because something happens once doesn't mean it will happen again. And thanks to that effect. How the... How then can you... How that you... Now that you can't perform with Betty one time, suddenly want to end it? That's a double standard. I'm not saying that we should definitely end it. I'm just saying we should think about it. I don't want to hurt Betty. The issue was left unresolved after the lunch meeting, but they talked several times by phone over the next few weeks. Each time, Candy grew colder and more antagonistic. She couldn't bear the thought of Alan having so little regard for her feelings. But then she would cry and feel better and tell him that she loved him. I do love you, Alan. I know, but we become too close. We become so close that I'm afraid I don't love Betty anymore, and that was never part of our agreement. We've both been using each other to fill gaps in our marriage, and that's not right. It's just so unfair. <clears throat> After the Friday night incident, Betty Gore fell into a deep despondency that lasted several weeks. At first, Alan thought he could talk her out of it by spending more time with her, but soon she was complaining of soreness in her neck and shoulders and sudden pains. She was sullen and depressed much of the time, especially after she returned to teaching in early 19, September 1979. She started seeing her family doctor again, and he prescribed pain pills to alleviate some of her complaints. Privately, he suspected that the ailments were all stress-related. So later that month, Alan satisfied an old ambition of his and quit Rockwell International to join a tiny new company called ECS Telecommunications. The company had only one product, a telephone answering machine, but Alan had good friends there, former Rockwell employees, who dared him to take a chance with a small ground floor firm. The only way Alan could have advanced to Rockwell would have been to take jobs that required extensive travel, out of the question, that, would be, that was out of the question given Betty's fear of being alone. <laughs> ECS was offering more money and stock. The job was exciting and something Alan really wanted to do if Betty would go along. It took a while, but he convinced her that the move wasn't too risky, that he wouldn't be spending more time at work than he was now. Betty reluctantly agreed if she hadn't, Alan wouldn't have done it, because he wouldn't have been able to stand this complaining. But she remained fearful and nervous, as she was about any new adventure. <clears throat> The next time Alan talked to Candy, he said that because of the new job and the additional work, he wouldn't be able to see her as much. Candy was upset. She was beginning to fear the inevitable end of the affair.
but she asked Alan if they could meet at least once more. At the Como, they had quick, unsatisfying sex, then spent an hour and a half discussing how they could live without each other. The next time they met, they didn't bother to go to the motel. <clears throat> Instead, they took their picnic lunch to a park in North Dallas and spread their blanket under a tree. The weather was so nice that they gave a bittersweet aurora, aura to the conversation. I love you so much, Alan. I don't even think we can make it if we break up. Betty wants to go to marriage counseling called Marriage Encounter. I asked her once before, but she always said she didn't think we needed it. I think maybe it will do us both some good. So marriage so this marriage encounter, marriage counseling um, thing is pretty much what is... Alan has actually heard about this before from his friends about how this helps his marriage because back before when him and his wife were having problems, he thought about doing this, but his his wife Betty was not really interested in doing it at all. So they a few months later, years later, she decided she wants to do it. So that's how they came up. That's how marriage encounter came into the came into the con ex conclusion. I think marriage encounter is going to be the end for us, Candy said. Oh no, not necessarily. Let's see what happens first. Two weeks later, Betty returned to a doctor's office, extremely tense and complaining of aches and pains in her shoulders. Her blood pressure was dangerously high. The doctor prescribed more painkillers and muscle relaxants and asked her to come back in a few days. Betty felt a little better after talking to the doctor. What she didn't tell him was that all of her anxieties were countered on the coming weekend. She and Alan were about to be encountered. <clears throat> Dunphy's Royal Motor Coach Inn, a fake medieval castle full of tunnels, turrets, and gables, and the regal purples and scarlets of an adult Disneyland, was a site each month of the weekend gathering called Methodist Marriage Encounter. It was less a counseling session than a total immersion experience, though it had the tact and approval of the church. It was run by laymen. It began with a Friday night dinner, at which the rules were explained. Spouses were to be always at each other's side. There was to be no distractions at all, such as TVs and newspapers. Nothing was to get in the way of the couples communicating about their feelings. Alan and Betty were led into a large meeting hall with three dozen or so other couples and introduced to their encounters leaders, all married couples, who had previously gone through the program. The couples on stage would talk openly about their marriages, but no one else was to speak except in the privacy of their own pilgrims. The procedure was that the leaders would propose a question. The verse was, why did I come here this weekend and what do I hope to gain? Then the couples would retire to their rooms or to write answers in their individual marriage encounter spiral notebooks. Once they had written their answers, they exchanged notebooks with a kiss. Read each to each other, read each other's answers, and then discussed how those answers made them feel. When their time was up, they would be summoned back to the main room for more testimonials, followed by additional questions. The group leaders gave them printed sheets explaining how to write a love letter, how to dialogue, and what is a feeling, and assured them that everything in written the notebooks would be strictly private. Betty and Alan's were sent to the rooms. They began to write. Alan didn't know originally what to write down, but he said, I wanted to come here because I see from my friends' examples that it could strengthen or build our marriage. 
I think too that I haven't felt really close to you for some time and I don't like that. I hope I can learn to talk to you. I hope you can learn to talk to me. I want to be able to understand why you do the things you do and I want to be able to tell you what I want. So Betty wrote, I came for several reasons. First, for a weekend of relaxation, which will probably help my nerves. Second, and most important, to get off by with, to get off, off by together. I'm not a person to be left alone. I want my husband with me and that's what we'll have this weekend. Just us. I hope to gain a little more freedom and expression between us. I don't often hold back my feelings unless I'm mad. Then not for long, but I feel that sometimes you don't let me know things when things are bothering you. We need to work on this. As he read over the answers to those guests that they had written, Alan was pleased to see that Betty really was responding to this program. After a few minutes, one of the group leaders came by and knocked on their door. It was time for the next session, <clears throat> which was called Focus on Feelings. This session was more personal. The couples were, couples were given three questions. What do I like best about you and how do I feel about that? Or hide fat, H-D-I-F-A-T. What do I like best about myself and hide fat? And what do you like about us and hide fat? So the first question, Betty wrote, the thing I like best about you is your calmness and your ability to look at everything squarely. You don't know, or maybe you do, how this affects me. You're my tranquilizer. Her final answer, what she liked about them as a couple, was that very special feeling, get one word together. Warm and happy. It's horrible when we're not. It's like I'm only half of me. Maybe that means I'm not secure enough. I don't think so. I th your presence is just important to me. Alan's answers are more prosaic. He liked Betty's dedication to raising the children and her jobs. He liked himself for his calmness and rationality. He liked them for their promising future. He felt secure, but not totally fulfilled yet. The encounter session was in full swing Saturday, and as the day wore on, through meals and pep talks and introductions on how to describe in loving detail, or dild, or share our uniqueness, or open up the gift of dialogue, and as the questions got progressively more personal and incisive, the group took on all the appearances of a lovin'. It occurred to show off affection publicly, couples holding hands during the meeting room sessions, and exchanging light kisses at meals. Everyone was issued a name tag. Alan's read Alan and Betty Gore. Betty's read Betty and Alan Gore. The couples were encouraged not to carry on any conversations with each other without including their spouse entirely. Giving the total immersion, the lack of outside influences, and the complete concentration on one person for an entire weekend, it was surprising that remarkable things were happening. Alan was beginning to realize why couples who merged from marriage encounter were likely to become evangelists. During their time together, Alan and Betty were, cer were certainly starting to feel closer. When the couples were asked to write a love letter on feelings of disillusionment, the dislike gave way for Alan. I have feelings of boredom, emptiness, and sort of loneliness. I don't really know why, but I do. I don't feel like I really know why, what makes you happy. And that's frustrating. Sometimes I feel like what is most important to you is your classroom, not me. That may be true, but sometimes I just feel jealous of that classroom. Betty's love letters, in quotations, on Saturday began with a confession of her shortcomings. I were the mass of the do-it-all person and led up to her most deep-seated fears. So many times she began in one letter, 
I feel that sex is an area that we are long way apart. I guess part of it is the way I brought up was brought up. Sex is dirty and wrong. And for a long time, the fear of becoming pregnant when I didn't want to be. I want to be desirable to you and I want to make you happy. And another response, in response to another question, she touched me on an even more specific anxiety. It's hard for me to talk about sex too, more of the upbringing stuff. Sometimes it's so hard to feel calm and quiet as you need to be enjoying sex. I guess the relaxation part is the hardest for me. That's why in sweat, a little or a lot of wine helps. It relaxed me so I could really be free to enjoy it all. I've tried several times to have some of what we've gotten, but tastes bad. Or leases up, or if it's a school night. There's always a drawback. Does this mean I'm not comfortable with sex if I need to make need wine to make it a little more pleasant? I don't know. Sunday is the final day and most special day of the marriage encounter. It begins with religious services followed by more group sessions and then each couple is given a mimeograph sheet. On it is the big question of the weekend. What are my reasons for wanting to go on living? The couples retire to the rooms for 90 minutes of writing in their notebooks and 90 minutes of dialogue. A total of 30 hours for what is called the matrimonial evaluation. It is intended to bring out the emotions that have been building throughout the weekend. After the go on living session, couples frequently emerge from their homes with this hair stained faces and tousled hair. In the case of the Gores, it was an engrossing and satisfying experience. They declared the love over and over and let her and the dad. <clears throat> Alan wrote, before this weekend, I was beginning to feel like I don't know if I really wanted to live with you. But just in a short time we've had together this weekend, I have realized that what I was feeling was not, I don't like you, but more, I like, I don't feel excited about you because I'm not used to the way things are. Or no, I'm sorry. I'm too used to the same way things are. I want to share more of your feelings and I want to be able to share mine with you. Betty was equally warm, but at the end of her letter, she turned psalm. Here I sit crying because I'm so happy and so proud to be your wife. I've known that all along, but when you really stop to think about it, we are so lucky to have each other. Let's don't let anything come between us. We've been through so much. All of it we can look back at as good. Except the times you were gone for a long time. I remember those times with dread. The aloneness, the coolness of a house that really wasn't a home without you there. The fear of your state for your safety because you were you were where I was not and I couldn't make sure you were okay. I never really felt fear for my safety at home alone. But the feeling of being alone is the worst possible one to have. It's like you're in a dark tunnel and you've got a long way to go to the light. The light isn't there till you're home again safe and sound. That night they emerged from room 321 for the final time and the group gathered to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The couple sipped the communion wine in the marriage encounter fashion with arms linked. Afterward, in the emotional climax, they were all remarried in a ceremony which they led each other through the traditional vows. Many of their encountered friends surprised them with their presence at the ceremony, and others sent their love through reading cards congratulating them on their new commitment. When the Gores got in the car to go home, the radio happened to be broadcasting the wrap-up show of the Dallas Cowboys games. Alan switched it off. It was just noise to him, part of a past life. When they got home that night, they filled in calls until bedtime, all from joyful alicious, soon be part of their flame group, which would meet regularly to keep the spirit of the fellowship alive. 
The Gores ran one errand before they returned to Wiley, though. They stopped by the Montgomery house in Fairview to pick up Bethany, whom Candy had kept for the weekend. Alan went to the door while Betty waited in the car. How was it? asked Candy. It was really good for us. What do you mean? What does that mean? I don't know. The next morning, Allie was still riding the emotional high as he dressed for work. On the drive into Richardson, he tried to shut out all the sensations except the thoughts of Betty. His life had changed. He wanted to concentrate all his thoughts and feelings on his marriage. This was once again the most important thing in his life. Yet when he got to work, he knew that sooner or later he would need to call Candy. They met a week later. She brought a pick to clinch, and they went back to the park in North Dallas. Alan did most of the talking. He told Candy all about Marriage Encounter and what it had done for them. We learned a lot about each other, he said. I think maybe I was wrong with Betty in some ways. I think a lot of things she doesn't like about me were based on fears of loneliness instead of bitchiness. We told each other things that we hadn't even thought about. That's good, said Candy. I'm glad. I don't necessarily feel different about you, said Alan, but I do feel strong that I want to give my resources to my family. The relationship with you is taking away some of the emotional involvement and energy that I could direct towards Betty and the kids. I'm not sure how long this feeling will last or what will happen, but I know I don't want to interfere with it. What does that mean for me? I'm not sure if I can deal with not seeing you, said Candy. After making the strongest argument he could for breaking up, Alan still couldn't bring himself to say the words. They left the issue hanging but agreed to meet again the next day. When they did, Candy came directly to the point. Alan, you seem to be living up to me. So decided, I won't call, I won't try to see you, I won't bother you anymore. They both cried a little because they knew it was over. Alan was secretly relieved that she had made the decision, not him, that he didn't want to bear the guilt. He hadn't planned for it to happen the way. That's just how it worked. Candy had mixed emotions as well. She was telling the truth when she said she didn't know she would deal with the loss of Alan. She had grown comfortable with the idea of losing two people, of loving two people. She loved Alan's casual phone calls and small kindness, and she would miss him. The good news was that she didn't have to make any more damn picnic lunches. Which I kind of funny, Lenny. Funny there. A short while later, Candy and Pat attended a marriage counter cash session. There, though they enjoyed it, they did not have the same kind of life-changing experience that Petty and Alan had had. But both couples headed to the summer of 1980 with a sense of peace happiness about their lives. That would soon change. So that ends part one of this particularly interesting episode of... To have an affair or not to have an affair. So tune in next week when I come up to the conclusion of what ha what life-changing that happens because it's very, very sad and there are multiple victims through all this, unfortunately. <laughs> um, one of the major... Actually, got a lot of information from this book I found on Amazon called Evidence of Love, A True Story of Passion and Death in the Suburbs. It's written by John Bloom and Jim Atkinson. So if you want more information on it, you can find it there. But I will be uploading episode part two of this episode next week. See you later. <laughs>